And so I'm taking these tiny little baby steps toward living more sustainably. But the gain is, is that it's independence and freedom and mutual support and connection to people instead of replacing isolation and dependent. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen, an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's uh, guest who will introduce himself. Uh, Josh, please go ahead. Hi, uh, Josh Sporek. And uh, most people know me these days because of my sustainability leadership work. And I want to distinguish not just sustainability work, but sustainability leadership. Sustainability leadership is about people and culture, changing culture in particular. So, but people know me more for what gets me coverage is, uh, is my, like, for example, last spring, I challenged myself, a, a, a long series of challenges I did to live more sustainably, or that is to say, to hurt people less, to alleviate suffering that I was causing by polluting less. So I did this whole long series of things, and I'm ongoing, uh, uh, what I would call a mindset shift followed by process of continual improvement. So I, I avoided packaged food and then started avoiding flying and then unplugged my fridge. Uh, and all of these things that I thought would make my life worse ended up in exactly the ways that I thought it would make it worse. Exactly those ways is how it actually improved it. Hmm. And nothing special about me here. This is a, a common trend. So last spring, I did this crazy thing. I went over and I, I went to the circuit breaker for my entire apartment and disconnected my apartment from the electric grid with the goal of seeing if I could make it a month. Mm-hmm. not knowing how I'd make it more than a couple days. And actually today is the 22nd. So it started May 22nd. So today begins month 11 of being off the grid in Manhattan. Uh, as, you know, this is just my personal behavior, but mm-hmm. I'm, you know, 4 billion people live in cities. And if not one of them believes that you can live off the grid in the city, no one's going to try. Mm. So, Anyway, this is just personal behavior. It's not my leadership stuff. The leadership stuff is working with CEOs and working with political people to help them change so that they can live more sustainably, so that they can lead their constituencies and their companies to be more sustainable. I don't know if that's yeah. like, that's where I am now. I don't yeah, know if, yeah. if I should no, go that, more It's into... absolutely fascinating. And I, I would like to, to, you know, hear more from you about this. Um, I, I do want to go back though to, to for the listeners to understand where you came from. So where did you... Where were you born? Where did, where did you grow up? And and you know and take us ultimately to the place where you're now. Yeah, to to see where I was born, it's important also to see a bit before I was born. My parents okay. met in India. Mm-hmm. They were both on government grants, on Fulbright grants. To my dad to learn history, to study history. My mom to teach English. And so, my older sister was born in Rajkot, India. I was. Born in, they they come back and I was born in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell a joke here, not a joke. 
uh, I was just speaking with someone from Corvallis, Oregon. I know Corvallis, most people wouldn't know Corvallis, Oregon, um, except that my parents spent a bit of time there just before driving across the country to Philadelphia to where I was born. And I mentioned to my mom, uh, oh, I was talking to someone from Corvallis. You guys always talk about Corvallis. And she goes, you were conceived there. <laughs> so I guess there you talk, want to talk about my childhood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so let's see, in Philadelphia, I grew up in Philadelphia, but then I spent a formative year in, in India as a child. And, mm. uh, you know, I remember I, I had very blonde hair, very pale skin, blue eyes. And the kids would like touch my hair and they would touch my skin and they would reach into my pockets. And um, it was this really feeling of, of, I didn't know that it was, it was unusual to be a, you know, I, I, there's very few white people around at the time in, in Ahmedabad, India. And so we were kind of poked at, kind of, anyway, so that year, and, and also that led to India being a big part of our lives. Um, Certainly, Gandhi has been a major influence on me, mm. as well as Martin Luther King um, and Nelson Mandela. And my parents got divorced when I was young. When, after the divorce, they, they weren't really rolling in dough. I mean, my, my dad was a young professor, my mom, uh, at the time, a housewife. And then when they got divorced, my mom moved into this very, very rough neighborhood of Philadelphia. Uh, I recently met a novelist who wrote his book about right where I lived, and he called it the ghetto. It was mm. the heart of Black Philly, is what he called it. And um, I was just mugged many times, and my bike's stolen, and our lunch is stolen, and things like that. And my mom was warned, don't let him down at the end of the block, because that's where the gangs are. Um, meanwhile, at my dad's house, it was uh, Mount Airy, Philadelphia, was um, deliberately integrated very early, and was... A, a very diverse neighborhood, and we were raised to be, we also had to go to a, a religious day school, and it wasn't until many years later that I looked back and realized that I'd never been religious, and I felt like this was really pushed on me. I, I didn't like that. Um, but all my friends were there, so um, I went to Central High School in Philadelphia, which was the magnet school. It was like the, for those in New York, it's kind of like Stuyvesant or Bronx Science, except scaled down to Philadelphia. Mm. And there were still, it was, it was the best public high school in the city. And also still, how do I put it? There's a lot of crime and violence going on inside the school as well, mm -hmm. but not directly my crowd. Cause I was in the prep crowd, ended up going to uh, the college prep crowd and working on the, the yearbook and things like that. Went to Columbia undergrad for college majored in physics, got a PhD in astrophysics, helped build a satellite that's still orbiting the Earth, still taking data, although the next generation has now superseded it. Uh, left academia to start a company, co-found a company based on an invention of mine that took off for a while, and then for various reasons outside of our control, it, it, um, um, the market collapsed for that particular invention. Went back to business school, started learning leadership. No, I, yeah, I, in business, stop me if I'm going on too long. But uh, in business school, it was the first time that I saw that there were classes in leadership. I'd never heard of such a class. Mm. I didn't know that you could learn social and emotional skills. And I should point out that I, they taught through case study and reading and writing papers, which I now look back on as saying, it, it showed me you could learn social and emotional skills 
it opened the door, but didn't show me how to walk through. So it wasn't until after business school that I started actually practicing. I, I had a friend who started a, a school that was a project-based learning school. I'd never heard of project-based learning before. Hmm. And for those who don't know, I'm not going to go into it, but it's like, it's not just, it's a very specific pedagogy style of teaching that he started the school from scratch, a public school in Philadelphia. And the, the first graduating class, President Obama, who was president at the time, spoke to this graduating class. I was like, what's going on? How is this? How does he get the president to speak at the school? So I visited the school and learned the, the style of teaching and brought it to my, a class that I was teaching at NYU at the time to teach entrepreneurship that way and later teach leadership that way. And I started getting really high reviews from the students. Hmm. Uh, and that led me to write my books, Leadership Step-by-Step, Step, an initiative of how to learn these things through practice, practical learning, experiential learning. If you had met me 15 years ago, I was, my, my big project was to start a school for leadership, something like business school, but not just for, you know, I, I got this great education in business and this great network of people in finance and consulting and international, multinational corporations, but I wasn't going into those fields. So I didn't, about half my MBA was not useful for me. The rest was super useful. So I wanted to start a, something for people who didn't want to become consultants and finance people and working at multinational corporations. Mm -hmm. And so that started taking off with NYU. But then this thing happened that was, was n I never intended to be something important in my life. I, I had all my life, I'd known about global warming, about sea level rise, about plastic pollution, about extinctions. I mean, every nature show I've ever seen, when I was a kid, they ended with, oh, and this stuff that's so beautiful is under stress. We have to help protect it. Now it's like the whole show is that. There's no, it's not like there's something beautiful. Oh, and by the way, we have to protect it. It's like we're losing everything. So, but I felt like if you'd asked me at the time, I would, without a doubt, say one person's actions can't make a difference. Governments and corporations, they're the ones who cause the problem. They should solve it. And it would be a waste of time for me to try to do something because for me to do something would be a big mess in my life. But divided by 8 billion or at the time, 6 or 7 billion, would make no difference to the world. So it, it didn't make sense to try. That said, for various reasons, one time I was in my kitchen and I looked at the garbage in my kitchen, which was mostly food packaging. And I asked myself, or I said to myself, maybe you can't fix everything, but this stuff, this I'm responsible for. No one else can claim responsibility for this. And I know that this is not going to break down in, any, in my lifetime. It's going to end up in someone's backyard. It's going to end up in, I mean, now it's, it's going to end up in people's veins, placentas. And so I asked myself, could I go for a week without packaged food? And there's a whole story of, of how it happened. But I thought, you know, in New York City, food is shipped in from all over the world. We got the best stuff here. Why would I not get the best stuff? People train their whole lives to be chefs here. Why would I not avail myself of this great stuff? I don't, I don't know how to make stuff from scratch. And I nonetheless went for it. And I made it, a week, I made it two and a half weeks with the goal of one week. And it began a process of switching from expecting that if I acted on my environmental values, that it would bring me deprivation and sacrifice 
to eventually learning that exactly what I think, what I thought I would lose, I actually gained exactly those things. Mm -hmm. So once that, as I picked up on that pattern, I then thought what else might be something where I expect deprivation and sacrifice and actually will find joy, fun, and freedom. And so that led me to, cha led me to challenge myself to avoid flying for a year. That was a, like, I think a year or two after avoiding packaged food. And, and I was generally, I'm not at zero packaged food, but a lot less than before, uh, mainly because it saves money, because it's more accessible and it increases accessibility for, for others. And because it's more convenient, exactly the opposite of what I expected. I mean, exactly the opposite and exactly the opposite of what everyone expects. Everyone expects it'll take more time. It'll take more money. It's, it's impossible for people. You know, it's poor people can't do these things. It's, they're exactly wrong. It's exactly the opposite. It's so crazy. So uh, then avoiding flying, I challenged myself to go for a year avoiding flying. Again, I thought I'm going to get fired, not fired, but it, my income was based on required traveling. And mm -hmm. I thought my family would disown me. And I thought I would, I would say goodbye to adventure and cuisine. And exactly those things is what improved in this crazy trend. So that led me later to unplug the fridge, then try unplugging the apartment for a day, then unplug the apartment for the goal of a month, and now going into month 11. Mm -hmm. um, and I recognized that the world was missing leadership in the area of sustainability. And I distinguish leadership from what I might call management or engineering of, of giving people facts and numbers and telling them what to do. That's important it doesn't really change people's behavior. It's like telling a cigarette smoker that they'll get lung cancer. Well, they weren't doing it for their health in the first place. And when people are really addicted to something, which people are very addicted to the comfort and convenience and things that pollution brings, they don't look past the withdrawal to the potential for a better life afterward. And I don't know, maybe different listeners will have a different feeling about leadership and sustainability. Leadership, to be an effective leader, you need integrity, character, vision, experience. You can't lead others to live by values that you live the opposite of. And I look around and I really just, I hope other people see something that I don't, but I do not see people living by the values that they want others to live by. They, the most ardent environmentalists, pollute almost as much as the people who don't know or care. And they have different rationalizations and justifications for it. Oh, what I do doesn't matter. Oh, governments, corporations, they're the ones who should act. And all sorts of rationalizations and justifications. But they're basically leading, if, you, if I tell you to do something and I do the opposite, I'm basically leading you to tell other people to also do something, but while you don't do it yourself. And I think that's our culture of everyone's got their excuses for why they're polluting and they're leading everyone else to have their excuses for why they pollute. Now, here's the craziest thing. When I actually do it, I find that it improves my life. And not just me. There's nothing special about me in this regard. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm going to, I'll say one more thing and then, and then, and then stop talking. But th this point I'm making about exactly what I thought I would lose is what I would mm -hmm. gain what I found that I gained. When someone is addicted to something, say a gambler, they get, they feel like they're winners. 
someone who's addicted to gambler, they feel like they're a winner. Someone who's addicted to meth, they feel like they have lots of energy. They get brief jolts of this pleasure. And it often can be very predictable. I mean, if you take meth, you'll feel within seconds whatever meth makes you feel. But exactly what they get in that jolt, the rest of their life they have less of. So gamblers feel like winners, but they're actually losers. That's why they, that's the problem. They run out of money. They start borrowing. Meth users feel like they have lots of energy, and they do for that brief jolt, but the rest of the life they have less. People who are addicted to social media, they feel connected, but they're actually isolated. So what do you think you get more of when you're addicted to something? You actually get less of. So if you are able to kick the addiction, if you stop using meth, you'll find you'll have more energy in your life. If you stop gambling, you'll find that you stop losing. So you tell me what you fear losing in living sustainably. And I'll tell you exactly what you will gain more of. So if you think you're going to lose family, you will get more of that. If you think you're going to lose your job, you'll get more. It will improve your career. If you think you'll have less nature, you'll have more. Exactly the opposite. But try to tell a heroin user that if they stop using heroin, their life will be, they'll actually have more good feeling in their life. And they'll say, no, are you kidding? You have no idea what you're talking about. And more precisely, when someone's addicted to something, from the outside, someone sees a gambler running out of money or sees a social media person just hold up in their apartment all the time, just sit in front of a computer screen. But for them, what it feels like when you're addicted is your addiction feels warm and supportive. It feels like family. And someone, for someone to suggest to stop using what you're addicted to feels like they're saying to you, give up your family. Give up your, your greatest source of community and support. So if I, if I say to someone, consider not flying, they feel like, consider giving up your family, consider losing your job. That's what addiction feels like. It doesn't feel like, from the outside, it looks often dirty, but from the inside, it feels warm and supportive. Because hmm. if I say to someone, consider giving up spinach, we know spinach is healthy, but it is not addictive. So no one feels like, oh my God, you're asking me to give up so much. But ask someone to give up, or someone, See, I don't want to say give up because, but, you know, ask a parent not to use disposable diapers. And they're like, it's like horrible in their mind, despite that for 300,000 years, people lived without disposable diapers. When you were talking about the, 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 the change, um, when I listened to you, you said, you know, you were looking at your garbage mm -hmm. and then you thought, okay, you know, I can do something. It, was that really the moment or was it the process where you thought, you know, I have to change, you know, my life? Oh, well, there have been, it wasn't the first time I'd ever challenged myself. Okay. So I stopped eating meat in 1990. Mm -hmm. And then a few years later, I stopped hydrogenated oil. And a few years later, I stopped uh, high fructose corn syrup. So I'd had like dietary things that I did before, although they were generally more for my personal interest. This was the first time that I was doing something for others. I thought I was taking one for the team. Hmm. There were a few precedents of why I, I was doing work on my apartment. So I ended up staying with my sister for a bit and she cooks from scratch and hmm. she shops at farmer's markets, which I hadn't done before. So seeing in action how it could be different, open the door for me to try 
like I used to think that farmers markets were more expensive, and I used to think that farmers markets were more exclusive. And I didn't. I would go there, and I like ninety percent of the stuff I didn't know what. It was. Like if you said, "Here's some chard and here's some uh, kale," I'd be like, "I don't know which is which." Now, now it's like I, I go. I like the five percent that I don't know what it is, like mm -hmm. stinging nettles, that. So I'm very curious about those things. But at the time, seeing my sister in action helped open the door for me to, for me to try to cook from scratch. Mm -hmm. But I really didn't. If, it, it took me years to look back and realized that if I really looked inside, I wanted that experiment to fail. Hmm. I wanted the, I wanted to find that the cure was worse than the disease. Because if the cure was worse than the disease, I could give up and stop trying. Because I thought it would be hard. And I was very pleasantly surprised in the end to find that the, the cure was preferable to the, the disease. Fresh fruits and vegetables and cooking from scratch, I prefer to well, what I call doof. Doof being ultra-processed food, but I won't call it, I, I don't use the word food to describe that stuff. What, what McDonald's and Starbucks sell. So, so there is not one moment, it was more a process of, of, for you. An unexpected discovery, yeah. yeah. Hmm. This mindset shift, I, I didn't ask for it, I didn't want it, but yeah. once I found it, it was one of the best things I've found. So do you see yourself going back? Or will you continue the life that you have now to stay off the grid and you know, not travel, not fly anymore? There's no way I'm going to fly again. I mean, that would be just a revolting experience. I mean, to me, flying is going into someone's land, kicking them off their land, taking the minerals underneath, to make the plane, to make the fuel, and then shove the, the, the exhaust into their faces. I mean, would you inhale a cigarette and just blow the smoke into a baby's face? I, most people, I think, would not do that. And yet the amount of pollution coming out the back of the jet is incomparably, I mean, it's millions of times greater than one exhalation of smoke. And it's to what, to wreck the place that I'm flying to? And to deprive myself of learning about the nature and culture where I am. It's, I mean, and, and by the way, I know that anyone listening to this is feeling like, what? The Amazon, how, how else can I visit nature if not to fly and go visit the Great Barrier Reef? How else can I visit what happens if my mom who lives on the opposite coast is sick? Well, I, I have to go do these things. It's my imperative that I have to be a cultural, you know, do this cultural exchange and, and help the world grow. That's what it feels like when you're addicted to something. It feels like it's warm and it feels like you're doing the right thing. And it feels like it's helping the people that you're actually hurting the most. So, um, and I know that most people would describe how I live as extreme. But first of all, I, I have to remind people, talking about my personal behavior is not talking about leadership. There's a whole other world of leading others. I can't lead others if I don't live by these values myself. But you have to have integrity and character and in order to have credibility and for people to trust you, which in sustainability, I don't see many people with that, with integrity and credibility on sustainability. But yeah, I mean, from even though it might look to others like um, not eating out whenever I feel like it is depriving myself of like, oh, you know, because the typical in New York, every like at five o'clock, everyone's like, oh, where should we go? Oh, I had Chinese last night. Like, can we get a French this time? I haven't had French in a while. 
Oh, you want Italian? Okay, we'll do Italian. Oh, Thai, let's get that. And that's like, I think that's viewed as like cultural. And meanwhile, the idea of going to the farmer's market, right? So it's, it's uh, March right now. The farmer's market, I don't think the greens have come in yet. So you got beets and sweet potatoes and potatoes and turnips and radishes. That's culture. That's cuisine. It's like, how do you take what is here and make it delicious and healthy and affordable? I love it. So why do I go back? It, it's like, why would I, now that I'm clean, why would I start taking heroin again? I mean, I know there's a jolt of euphoria. That's what your question was to me. You know, now that you're clean, do you want to go back and, and start gambling again? Do you want to start taking meth again? Um, let us, I would like to, to go to, you know, the coaching that you do with leaders. Um, can you tell a, a bit about, you know, what type of leaders are, you know, coming to you? Um, and then how do they react, you know, to hear you speak about this? Because I, I assume that, you know, you, you integrate, you know, your behavior and, and, and your uh, how you stand in life to when you coach uh, them. So, so uh, talk us through that. Types of coaching here. There's, there's the right. regular straight leadership coaching, which is, mm -hmm. I, it's what I've been doing for a long, long time. Okay. And that is, it's generally helping executives to become better leaders, mm -hmm. unrelated to sustainability. But the techniques of helping people improve their leadership in one area are useful in other areas too. So I, I increasingly work with executives who want to change their company's cultures with, or, um, or constituencies, if it's an elected official, toward embracing sustainability, not just doing it because they have to. Leadership is about intrinsic motivations, not so much extrinsic motivation. Now you need both, carrots and sticks are important, but if people don't have a vision for a future, if they don't feel like this is something that will improve their lives, if, if they don't feel understood, if, they don't, if they're not acting for emotions that were inside them before I ever met them, which is, gives, makes something feel meaningful and even inspirational, you can get compliance, but you, people will do it because you ask them to, but they'll stop when you're gone and they'll push back. Whereas if you lead them effectively, then they'll want to do more. So in the process of my podcast, I developed what's now called the Spodic Method, which is a process of, I mean, it's, it's, it's just what's in my book, Leadership Step-by-Step, Step, except that's for general leadership, and this is specific to the environment. In the environment, there's a few things that make it unique, a unique area of leadership. One is that, the big one is that everyone has intrinsic motivation relevant to the environment. They don't usually share it so much, but they, they've, ha they've had a quintessential experience of loving nature, everyone. It could be at the beach, it could be in the mountains, it could be with a pet, lots of different places where it can come. But for each person, it's genuine, authentic, and very powerful. On the flip side, the emotions involved can be very intense, and they tend to be emotions that people don't like to face. They like to suppress and deny. So it's guilt and shame, helplessness, hopelessness, insecurity. Mm -hmm. In many areas of leadership, those aren't the principal uh, emotions. 
So you have to be sensitive to these things. And you have to be sensitive to people who are going to come back with all sorts of defenses that don't make sense, but they're not supposed to make sense. They're just supposed to help them sleep at night when they're doing something, you know, in Abraham Lincoln's terms. Abraham Lincoln said the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. And so whatever our, our rationalizations and justifications for doing stuff that pollute, we know that when we pollute, we're doing something wrong. And so that, 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 that triggering of defenses that are very powerful, very personal, and they feel like they're defending the most helpless people, even when they're hurting exactly those people. They feel like they're protecting their connection with their family, even when pollution tends to tear families apart. They feel like they're helping the most the people that they're hurting the most. Anyway, so the spotting method walks people through, and I won't go into the, all the details here, but I ask someone to share what the environment means to them. Mm-hmm. And then we spend a bit of time delving into what, it's usually some quintessential experience for them. And it can be very touching. It's actually my favorite part of the podcast, where people share their experience of, sometimes it could be as simple as a particular sunset. Sometimes it can be, you know, a time seeing a whale swimming next to their boat. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, these are stories that I'm like, I, as I say, I'm thinking about the person talking about these, these amazing experiences. Yeah. And then I ask them to share the emotions that come to mind, that come to heart with these things. And then I invite them to think of something they can do to act on those emotions. And when they act on their emotions, for their reasons, first, they usually feel like, wait, I'm supposed to, if it doesn't help, if it doesn't scale up to help everyone in the world, it's not worth doing. Like Bangladesh is going to be underwater and you want me to do something to, relevant to that whale? That doesn't have anything to do with anything. But when it's for their own reasons, when they do it, they like what they've done and they want to do more. So when I work with a client, if I just do it once, they'll have one experience mm-hmm. where they realize there's something in nature worth saving, worth protecting. It's very easy to lose that in our modern world. Most people. Most people can't simply walk to walk among the trees or go to a beach and have a beach without plastic and helicopters flying overhead. So we don't know what we're losing, but when we, when we recall what we are, we're losing, we act on it, we, we make it alive. We want to do more. Now, if I work with someone longer, then we can not just have a mindset shift, but also a process of continual improvement. What comes to mind is I, I walk this through, there's a, a, an executive that I work with at I can't say because of confidentiality reasons, but it's one of the major, super major oil companies. Okay. You know this company. Everyone, I mean, everyone has shopped it, has bought gasoline from this company. Mm-hmm. And he really was resisting doing the Spodic method. But it happened that one time he was visiting his grandmother and near where his grandmother was a forest that he played in when he was a kid. Because of climate change, there's a type of beetle that would normally get frozen out during the winter that didn't get frozen out. And I've seen pictures now of this forest and it's stumps. It's just stumps. It's a forest has turned into stumps because of human, we've changed the climate of the whole planet. And when I asked him to share what the forest was like when he was a child and what this forest was like, not forest, like now, it was a very powerful emotional experience. And I asked him, I invited him to act on these things. 
and he came up with something to um, go to the forest near where he lived, uh, woods near where he lived. It actually changed in the practice of it, where he, pick, he ended up picking up litter with his daughter. And there's this picture he sent me of his daughter. She looks like a fisherman who is like caught like a giant fish. She's like holding, but it's a piece of litter. And she was on a jungle gym at some playground. And she like ran over to get to some piece of litter that was, you know, I mean, there's litter all over the place, but she happened to pick up this one piece and she was very proud of it. Why did he send me this picture? Because in order to bring me in to coach at this company, they have their own, their own coaching style and practice. And he has to present, this is how Josh works. It's compatible with our way. And in that presentation, he, he showed the picture of his daughter. This is an executive at some super major oil company. Mm -hmm. And he shows the picture of his daughter because he's saying, yes, this is for the environment, but also it's for our connection to our own family. I would never have come up with that to try to you know, share how it's affected your relationship with your daughter. I wouldn't have said that to him, but he did because it was so powerful for him. Now, you ask me, you might ask him, are you going to go back to ignoring litter when you're with your daughter? I, I think the answer is no. I, I, you know, you'd have to ask him, but I'm pretty sure, would you go back to ignoring litter? I, I'm pretty sure he would say no. And I know that one day I'm going to be working with executive, the chief executive officer of a place like that, or of, you know, like some other big polluting places like Starbucks or Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or whatever, Dow, Monsanto. And if I work with the CEO long enough, the CEO will, will say, you know, this is something worth acting on. Maybe they'll say, we're going to plug some well. Maybe they'll say, we'll stop selling this plastic thing. Now, a CEO can't unilaterally, a CEO just says, oh, I'm going to just do this on my own. We'll get fired. So the CEO is going to have to go to the board, to the employees, maybe to the unions, to the media, and make it happen. But it's, that's what, that's, that's leadership. That's changing mm -hmm. culture. And I don't, you know, I'm, I'm glad that places like 350.org, Extinction Rebellion are protesting. Because if someone's addicted, you need to inter sometimes you need an intervention to point out this is what's going on. And if someone's broken the law, as many companies have, that's what the justice system is for. But to kick an addiction, you also need support. You need listening. You need role models. I mean, different people need different things. Some people just need mm -hmm. a kick in the butt. But some people, many people will need listening and understanding and support to know that other people have gone through that transition themselves. And that's what I offer. And someone who hasn't tried can't offer. If someone hasn't themselves tried to live sustainably, it's like, would you take a piano lesson from someone who read a bunch of books on music theory, but never put their fingers on the keyboard and occasionally took a sledgehammer to, a, to pianos and broke them? Like, that's not how I'd get a piano lesson from. I want a piano lesson from someone who plays piano. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot more to it than just play this scale. You have to open up inside to really play music you have to know like what happens when you don't have time for it what happens when you're busy you still practice those are the challenges that are more challenging and the ones that are the actual hurdles to reaching sustainability it's not can we make an electric vehicle it's can we get rid of vehicles that pollute when people feel like the vehicles is how they connect with their family forgetting that the field kills why they live apart from their family in the first place.
George, let me let me um, you know what you were describing. I, I think um, you know the world, and especially in the West, I, I think it's different for people that you know have lived their whole life in poverty um, already. Um, but during COVID, a, a lot of us, if not all, felt that oh, we are interconnected and we need to work together, mm -hmm. and that's one thing. Another thing that many of us uh, started to walk and started to realize oh there are animals you know, around us that 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 was maybe the case for two weeks mm -hmm. and then when the vaccine was there you know the problem is solved we go back to business as usual um my point is i i you know what what you were doing is is um is pretty extraordinary in a sense that you know to be uh, that driven to continue with with uh, what you believe in, uh, while others, you know, a COVID period has showed, you know, went back to their old behaviors. Um. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, th there is not one solution. It seems for for the challenges that we have, we, different things need to happen. So, how do we get? Not not everybody is a leader. Or, or or can everybody be a leader? How do you see that, you know? You said a bunch of things there. I'll comment yeah. on them as I remember you saying them. So in COVID, this is an example of the difference between leadership and management, that mm -hmm. we were ordered to stay uh, quarantined. Mm -hmm. People didn't choose to do it. And so they complied, but they weren't, they weren't trying to live more sustainably. They got stuck living more sustainably. There was no change in culture. There's no vision for the future. And, you know, for a brief period, their Instagram feeds didn't show someone else on the beach. So they didn't mind not being on the beach themselves. And that's what happens when you just enforce something and you, you'll get compliance. And the goal wasn't to be more sustainable. So people could see that there was something there, but there was no leadership to take advantage of this experience. So people were saying, oh, this is all well and good that from New Delhi, you can see the, um, the Himalayas or from Beijing, you can see the other side of the street. But as soon as the, the forced compliance was gone, there was no attempt to change culture. There's no attempt to change hearts and minds. And therefore, there was no result of that. And so people all felt well and good. But then once they had the chance, they went and started flying again. And they weren't flying because, oh, I'm going to go pollute. They're flying because, oh, I want to see family. I want, to, I want my job. I want to uh, expand and bring our product to new markets. And that's what it feels like. So it, there was no attempt at leadership. As far I, I was not aware of anyone attempting to lead in sustainability with regard to COVID. So there was a big missed opportunity. We can live this way, but no one, no one was trying. So it, it just got lost. Now, as for my... You're describing my behavior as, I forget the words you use, not extreme, but um, dedicated or something like that. Now, I'm not a parent. And I don't, any, I grew up with pets. Any parent has changed their life infinitely more than I have. Every pet owner has changed their life much more than I have. They spend more money, they put more time into it, but of course they look at their pet and their children and think, this is something, this is someone or, so, or something that loves me. When I'm at a party and someone says, I got to go home early to either 
um, meet the, the babysitter or, or feed or walk the dog, they're not saying I'm missing out on a party. They're saying, I love this pet. I love this child. And it loves me back. We've lost, as a culture, nature being something that we can love and love us back. But also, because we hurt each other when we pollute, we cut ourselves off from each other. We're cutting ourselves off. Like, when I'm not plugging into the grid, this is an act of love for the people who would be hurt by my action and instead are not. And a lot of people say, oh, Josh, you're not a parent. You don't know what it's like. I'm a human being, and I love just as much. I have just as great capacity for love as any parent does. It's just not restricted to my specific children. I mean, I definitely love my nieces and nephews more than an, an average kid on the street. But all of what I'm doing, when I'm climbing up and down the stairs to bring my, my solar stuff to the roof, it took me a while to realize how much in my heart are the people who would be hurt by these things. And that when, when you pollute and you know you're hurting someone, we have to shut down parts of ourselves. That is not worth it. I mean, Lincoln said it was the most damaging thing you can do to yourself. The most damaging thing you can do to yourself, and we suppress and deny that. So I don't consider myself as doing something extreme or, or particularly dedicated. Living disconnected from the electric grid, you know who else lives disconnected from? I mean, every single human being that ever lived up until about a century ago lived without an electric grid. Every single one of them. Every single one of them lived without a refrigerator. And their diets were healthier than ours. And I'm traditional. I'm going back to what was there before. And when you look at other cultures, that we blithely and ignorantly call Stone Age, but cultures that are living more sustainably barely hang on now as we keep taking their land. We who say we're so abundant and they're so scarce, if we're so abundant, why are we taking their land and their mineral? That's backward until you realize, oh, maybe we're not so abundant. And they look at, uh, why do they still exist? If we're so abundant and we have so much longevity and hospitals and things like that, why do they resist? Now, some become assimilated, and certainly if we give them our cell phones, we can get them addicted. And, we give, and if we give them food aid, but it's not food, it's doof, then we can get them addicted, and then they'll want to, then, then they'll be poor in our culture. But the ones who resist and still stay true to their cultures, and this is not a trope of, of um, a noble savage trope, the ones that still maintain their styles of lives, they look at ours and they, they see the loss. If they were to, to switch the loss of, of community and independence and freedom and mutual support that our culture sacrifices for addiction and imperialism and taking from others, not living sustainably ourselves, and so I'm taking these tiny little baby steps toward living more sustainably. But the gain is, is that it's independence and freedom and mutual support and connection to people instead of replacing isolation and dependence. 
Josh, I, I um, I'm, I'm passionate about, um, you know, changing the system, uh, you know, that we have developed as, as human beings. Um, I, I think as a world, uh, you know, many has agreed that uh, we should change this world. That's why, um, you know, we came up with the 17 sustainable development goals. Um, we are not making the progress that we should have. And there is this, you know, group of folks around the world that said, you know, one of the reasons that we are not making those uh, steps that we need to make, the, the progress that we need to make is because we never paid attention to the abilities, the knowledge and the skills that you need as an individual and as a community to really change that system. And as a result, they came up with the inner development goals. Um, you know, my, my question to you is, is, um, is that kind of what you're trying to say to us? Um, that, you know, you need to work on being, on relating, thinking, collaborating and action if you want to change a system so it's it starts with the i and the we well certainly systemic change begins with personal change you will never get anywhere if you're trying to change a system but you're in the old one there's this a founder of a nonprofit that he didn't do the podcast because he works on plastic he works with the un and and, and trying to reduce plastic pollution and he couldn't do it because he has to be able to talk to corporations and he doesn't want them seeing him being too environmental. So we not recorded, we did this process and, and he, uh, the Spodic method, and he's, he started to move toward reducing plastic, like maybe avoiding plastic for a week or a month, I forget the exact detail. And he said to me, you know, Josh, my daughter loves strawberry and they're only in season here a couple months out of the year. And so for the rest of the time, we buy them from shipped in from California and they come in plastic. And if I stop using plastic, I can't get my daughter strawberry. Now he was very open and candid to share this with me. He didn't have to, but he did. Now, I don't know what's going through his heart when he's working with these other companies, but to what extent is he thinking about, well, I want to end plastic, but I want my daughter to get her strawberry. The way I put this is you can't stop the global heroin trade if you're worried about your supply. And as long as someone is addicted, they want to end pollution, but they still want to fly around. They still want the air conditioning. They still want the second home. They still, they, you can't, it, as long as people frame it as individual action is a burden, it's the opposite. It's a joy. And as long as people feel like, oh, I had something I have to do, they're going to communicate to everyone else it's something they have to do. It's like there's this orchestra. Humanity is this orchestra that we'd be given this command performance. We have to perform as, as, a, as an orchestra in the future. And no one knows how to play their instrument. And not only do they not know how to play their instrument, but they absolutely steadfastly refuse to practice. And they say, no, no, it's we should not practice. We have to, we'll just, We'll get people to make better instruments and we'll, the science and technology will make better instruments and just play themselves, but we won't actually learn how to play. And I, not only am I practicing my scales and learning how to play, it turns out it's really great. It's a joyful experience. And they're like, oh, why are you doing that? You're wasting your time. You shouldn't do that. It's such a waste. 
I'm like, I love playing my instrument. It's fantastic. So everyone who's saying, don't bother playing your instrument. It's always, oh, we, we just have to play better when we get to, I don't know how they're thinking that the orchestra is going to play well when no one knows how to play, how to play their own instrument. And, and they think that playing an instrument is like this, this burden that is deprivation and sacrifice. So if, if you think it's a burden and a chore to live sustainably, don't live sustainably. Just go pollute and stop feeling guilty. But I put to you that the comfort and convenience is nothing compared to the feeling of oneness and camaraderie and humanity of acting in stewardship of others, of knowing that, yeah, it kind of feels like a pain from a certain perspective that, oh, every time I fly, sometimes I just want to turn on the air conditioner. I don't want to think about every other human being on the planet every single time that I turn on the power. Oh, that's such a pain. No, that's a great, that's, that's connection. But if you feel that that's a burden to think of how your behavior affects others, get rid of your guilt and just go do it. Just go pollute. But I'm telling you, you're going to love it more when you don't get everything you want anytime you want, but you're not hurting people. There's no question. It's not like, oh, Josh is being a downer maybe someday airplanes will be hydrogen powered or they'll will, like it, by 2050 or something, some one company is going to use like 10% biofuels, which is going to take away energy that would be used for something else. There's no way you can fly sustainably. Absolutely no way. And if it's ever possible, the worst way to get there is to buy tickets for a jet powered plane today. And if, and it's exactly what you think it's going to make your life worse is exactly how it's going to make it better. When you, if you, you know, if anyone listening to this says, you know, I'm never going to fly again. That's your ticket to closer connection to family, more control of your career, more experience of nature and culture. But yeah, you're going to have to go through a period of, of withdrawal, just like anyone who kicks an addiction. But it's really, I mean, it's find that joy, that mental shift, that mindset shift. There's actually two mindset shifts. One is the one of, realizing that acting on your environmental values is not deprivation and sacrifice. It will improve your life. It'll bring you joy, fun, and freedom. That's the first mindset shift. The second mindset shift is that one day I was walking around my neighborhood and this little old lady is like out of us. I wouldn't believe it if it didn't actually happen. This little lady says, I'm, would you help me cross the street? And I put up my arm and I'm sure. You know, I help her walk across the street. It takes me, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute. And the rest of the day, I'm just walking on air because I've helped this little lady cross the street. Mm -hmm. I was actually in a hurry. And my being in a hurry made it more rewarding. There's another story I tell about, I was reading about um, this book by Jocko Willink, Extreme Ownership. He talks about a, a case where, well, it's soldiers. They were in, an, um, I don't think, it was, I think it was Iraq. And they took some fire. One man gets wounded. It wasn't a, a seal, it was a, an Iraqi. And the, the three Iraqis with him, two of them ran away. One of them was wounded and went down. And the, the seals went into the line of fire to bring him his body, his, his, you know, his wounded body to safety. Now, I'm not a soldier. I have not served. I haven't done anything remotely like going into the line of fire. 
The soldiers I've spoken to who have been in battle have talked about love, a deep, deep love for their, someone who had their back, someone who had their six, someone who was in the foxhole with them. That, and I don't think, I would bet that those SEALs didn't think for a second, for a moment, should we do this? Is it in our interests? No, the man's down. We're going to go get him. Partly knowing that if I'm the one who goes down, someone will get me. But that love that I felt for that little old lady that helped cross the street, that these soldiers feel for each other, that's the mindset shift. That we're doing it for humanity. For nature as well. I mean, to me, I, I'm a bit partial to humans over other life forms. But that mindset shift also is, I'm constantly looking for what's the next thing that I can do to connect myself more with humanity, to help more little old ladies cross the street, except in this case, it's you know, more families living on the other side of the world, not having birth defects because of the pesticides that we spray to keep things cheap here in the home power. How not to make island nations go underwater. How not to have slave labor. I mean, I had on my podcast this woman who worked on Doe versus Unical, which was this case of this pipeline going through Myanmar. It was called Burma at the time. And it was out came in court slavery, rape, murder. Try to get your fossil fuels without those things. Try to get it without destroying the last vestiges of the most beautiful spots in the world. Or alternatively, enjoy. Enjoy what people before all this pollution were able to enjoy. I mean, I had to look this up. Before pollution on the scale that we have today, humans came up with antibiotics, vaccines, anesthesia, democracy, arts, culture, sports, all of those things don't require pollution. And if someone thinks that we have to give those up, I mean, you can if you want, but I don't see why. I mean, those things aren't doing so well today. Democracy is like under threat. Antibiotics aren't working as much anymore, precisely because of polluting things. There's such a brighter future available without pollution. Let us piggyback on, on, on joy. What, what gives me joy is music. And the question that I always ask to my guests, if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies for a big part who Josh, Josh is, mm -hmm. uh, which song or piece of music would that be and why? Yeah, there's a couple songs that I think are kind of cheesy, but man, they make me feel good. Mm -hmm. And there's one, I don't think many people know it. It's as far as I know, it's a one-hit wonder called Gegi Ta. And they had a song called, I don't even know what the name of the song is. It's, the song is, is this guy is driving on the road and someone changed lanes so he could, it's like, I just want to thank you. You let me change lanes. He's just like, I just want to thank you. You, you brighten my day. You're someone, I don't know who you are, but you let me change lanes and you brighten my day. So the driving part I'm not so into. But it's just this wonderful thank you, gratitude. 
and it never fails. Like I could listen to that song over and over again all day long. And then the next day I'm going to feel like, oh, I, I like that song. I, I'm glad mm -hmm. to hear it again. Um, there's a couple others like that. The Rolling Stones, Waiting on a Friend, something about that is just such a relaxed, comfortable song. And Is that the lyrics or, or, or the uh, song it's, The name of the song is Waiting on a Friend, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not waiting on a lady. I'm just waiting on a friend. And it's just this kind of kickback, lazy song. Mm -hmm. Like a couple of people just sitting on the stoop, something like that. Just to, to remind the listeners and to tell you, I don't know if you're aware, but I, I made a, uh, a podcast playlist where all those songs that are uh, selected or, or chosen, um, you know, I put them together. So um, I, I it makes me happy when I listen to that particular list because it reminds me of all the people that I talked with. Oh, so, I, um, I got to throw in another one. Is, is Here Comes the Sun, George Harrison, okay. The Beatles. And that one, there's a remix of it that someone did a few years ago. Mm -hmm. It's a subtle remix, but it's like, I mean, this, you, can't, you can't beat the, the original, but the other one has got something special to it too. Mm -hmm. Okay, I will, I, will, I will check that out, that, uh, that mix. If you would be asked to walk 100 miles, why would you walk? The, I mean, on a personal level, I would find the joy in it. I mean, I've done, have I done a hundred mile walk? I haven't done a hundred mile walk. I've done marathon in a day. I've well, I do miles. it in a week, right? I do it in six days. So I do 15 to 20 miles a day where I meet with, you know, local communities, you know, food banks, name them. And we talk uh, as well, you know, about the issues, uh, well, about life. <laughs> That sounds like its own reward. <laughs> yes. No, it's 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 actually a lot of fun. It got a little bit out of hand, you know, that I'm still doing it after 11 years. But uh, yeah. I mean, if if the question is what cause would I raise awareness for, it'd be sustainability mm -hmm. leadership. Okay. Um, as you say, and I, I mean, I've listened to a couple of the episodes and I, somehow I didn't connect until now that just the Gandhi's march to the sea and then evaporated some seawater and made some salt and then sold the salt in, in violation of, of the monopolistic law. What an amazing jujitsu. Like, that was really one of the, mm. I mean, that's a great historical event of his march to the sea and then yeah. his act of civil disobedience of selling. Like, you, what a statement. Like, you may, you, it's illegal for me to go to the ocean and evaporate seawater. You've made that illegal, or I guess to sell it. I'm not sure if that's part of what's in, in your heart and mind as, as you're doing your walks, but I can't help but think of it. Mm -hmm. I still want to ask you to, um, to share with you the question of the previous guest. My question for the next guest is, what will be your legacy? What do you hope will make will be slightly different as a result of your having been here on the planet earth maybe it's what will be said in your obituary what is that thing i mean the legacy is going to be to it's to help i mean my my, my is my mission my mission is to is to change american and help change american and global culture 
to where people view acting on sustainability brings not deprivation and sacrifice, but joy, fun, and freedom. Or it would be different for different people, but rewarding results. And if I succeed in my mission, then my legacy will be, let's just say for the American part, I reduced my impact according to the online calculators of roughly 90% in about a two and a half year period. So now I think my impact is, is lower than the average Indian. And, but I'm still living in Manhattan, still paying the bills. So I'd like to, you know, I imagine, I would not have thought that possible, by the way. If I didn't do it, I wouldn't have thought it was possible. Mm. So I also don't think it's possible for me to help lead 330 million Americans to drop 90% and find joy, fun, and freedom in a two and a half year period. But if I didn't think I could do it and I could do it, maybe just because I don't think I can do it with 330 million, that maybe that could happen. So I would hope that I have a legacy of something like helping hundreds of millions of Americans and then people around the world as well to find joy, fun, freedom, connection, meaning, purpose in reducing their impact on others by something like 90% as a start and then keep going from there. It might also be, that's with the masses, that's with like a lot of people. Also a few chief executives or elected officials, for them to themselves change, to embrace this change and implement it on a systemic scale with their organizations and constituencies. So help change hundreds of millions and to help change a few at leverage points of the system. And, and your question for the next guest. What are you waiting for? If, if you can live more sustainably and you're not, what are you waiting for? Okay, great. Um, yeah, Josh, any, any question that I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, if you have hours and hours, I could go into lots of other things. But uh, I feel like we covered a lot. There's always more I can talk about because it's... it's there's such a disconnect between what people expect and what actually happens when we choose to live sustainably and how much potential there is for joy and fun and freedom. What a brighter future we have in which every single human being lives sustainably. Every one of us. Yes, that means never flying again. It means no nuclear, no fusion. Those things are not sustainable. And it means connection and community cuisine and you know these feelings of oneness and spirituality that yeah we didn't get to talk about those things but i think a lot of what religion is trying to replace or trying to restore something that our ancestors had automatically anyway i could go on yeah no and 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 thanks for for lifting that up i i often refer to the latest uh yeah i think it's the last book of karen armstrong where she identifies that you know the the the, the disconnect or or the, the the lack of connection of humanity to to nature and and spirituality or religion can play and should play a role um you know maybe one of the reasons that churches are are empty is because you know that that's lacking and people are longing for it um I think, you know, some of my guests 
you know, told me that, um, especially the younger generation, they are much more interested in the home garden, you know, adjacent to the church, because that's where they feel the connection with, uh, you know, humanity as well as with nature, and find their meaning and purpose. So, um, yeah, we could we could do another podcast about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, George, for for um, you know sharing your your wisdom, um, you know your willingness to to talk with me uh, today. Um, a lot to think about, and um, I, I really would encourage the listeners to check out your website. To make sure. That all everything is mentioned in in uh, in the podcast notes, and for leaders out there to reach out to you if they um, they're looking for a, a good coach. So um, thank you so much. Well, I'm honored to have been invited, and uh, I respond to people taking initiative. You did. for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram